Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Recreational marijuana is on the midterm ballots uh, this year in five states. Interestingly, four of them are traditionally conservative states. No, making weed legal is not on the ballot here in Iowa, but it is in some neighboring states, uh, Missouri, North Dakota, South Dakota. Uh, In these states, as well as in Arkansas and Maryland, voters will be deciding whether recreational marijuana can be used legally by adults. National polling suggests that most Americans think marijuana should be legal in some form. In terms of federal law, marijuana remains illegal. It's classified as a Schedule I controlled substance. That's the category that includes uh, also heroin and ecstasy. Remember last month, President Biden directed the Department of Health and Human Services and the Attorney General to expedite a review into that scheduling. He also pardoned all federal simple possession convictions. Uh, That is a fulfillment of uh, one of his campaign promises. So right now, the recreational use of cannabis for adults legal in D.C., 19 states, including uh, Illinois and uh, Michigan here in the Midwest, looks like that number of uh, legal weed states will grow. Here in Iowa, there's a new statewide campaign to reverse widespread social acceptance of marijuana among young people. Let's hear two different perspectives. Peter Komandowski is with us. He's the executive director of the Partnership for a Healthy Iowa. Peter, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Ben. Senator Joe Bocum is with us, a state senator uh, from Iowa City, a Democrat. Uh, Senator Bocum, welcome to you. Good afternoon. Uh, Let's start with you, Peter, uh, because you are spearheading this call for a statewide campaign. Outline the campaign you think is needed and its goals. Well, primarily the the success of industries that bet on products that induce addiction, alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana, um, is easily overwhelms people. You know, they're not dealing with science. They're basically spreading an advertising message that benefits their goals, which is to sell these products. And we think that most Iowans are underinformed as to the risks and that often manipulated in terms of the reality of the risks that we see in research. Um, and so obviously, if people are thinking about what they're hearing from advertising, the primary messages, they're likely to say, well, this is what I'm hearing and this is what I agree with. We want to make sure that all Iowans get a chance to learn what the risks are and what the precautions we need to take are to protect our youth. Mm-hmm. I understand you, you publicly shared your background here. How does, do your personal experiences make you a good spokesperson? Well, you know, I work with a lot of researchers around the country, and we try to look at states that have gone down this road and you know, working with doctors Ken Finn, Christine Miller, and other professionals around the state to see what the consequences were. Um, and they used to call them unintended consequences, but now we're pretty clear that these consequences are a reality and everybody is aware of them a priori. And in, in, in fact, you know, most people in the marijuana industry don't care about the consequences. They tend to tout all the claims that they make. Um, I think that my personal experience would say that the marijuana that we experienced in the 70s and 80s, we would consider rather innocuous now, which is you know, 2 or 3% THC. But the movement nationally for legalization is very high potency, 
THC products, which are highly addictive, huge problems for our society, for public health, and even greater problems because of the normalization of attitudes towards marijuana, of, of giving kids the indication that using these substances might be safe. And that is where the big falling out is between us and any discussion about marijuana legalization. There are not enough safeguards to protect our children from these risks. And we insist that we look closely, not at just what marijuana might be able to do through traditional FDA and doctor therapeutic alliance relationships, but also what risks we need to manage so that these things do not turn into an epidemic like opioids or anything else. Because we see very, very sympathetic correlations between what happened with the opioid epidemic and what, what's going on with marijuana. And, and you can't compare them head to head. It's apples to oranges. But you can look at human behavior and the potential to influence a whole new segment of an addicted society that's going to suffer huge public health risks. Okay. And they're going to fall not only at the expense of the individual, but also at public health. Okay. I want to have Senator Bolcom respond, but but first I want to remind our listeners we're live in this first half hour. If you'd like to join us with your view, because Senator Bolcom will imagine have a very different view, join us 1-866-780-9100, 1-866-780-9100, as we discuss what the law should be in regards to cannabis. Before we do go to Senator Bolcom with his reaction, give us some more details. What are you proposing in this this new statewide campaign, raising awareness. How do you propose to, uh, you know, protect uh, youth from the hazards that you see? Well, we work with youth groups and schools and around the state, work with educators and, and, and prevention people throughout the state. And what we're seeing clearly is that the message has not gotten out that these risks are a clear and present danger to our youth and future generations and that we don't have enough invested in protecting them from simple things, even like advertising and these Analogs, they create gummy bear THC products and vapable products, which are now exploding. You know, we are not implementing enough safeguards to protect our children from these products. And I think once Iowans understand the risk, they will see a rapid change from support for this kind of legalization to a much more conservative approach to saying, let's see what the FDA does with approval. Let's do more research. Let's learn more before we expose our children to the risks and make them guinea pigs. Okay, one eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. Let's go to Senator Joe Bolk, a Democrat from Iowa City. Uh, Senator, you've been active in this area for many years. We followed you on this program. Um, uh, in those efforts uh, with some of your colleagues, uh, first of all, just to make sure listeners are aware, how do you describe yourself in relation to cannabis and the law? The types of changes you've been advocating. Uh, you're a longtime advocate for for legalizing recreational use, correct? Well, most of my work has actually been focused on the issue of pro- providing medical cannabis for people with chronic conditions. And for the last half a dozen years, Iowa has moved to establish a program uh, that's been effective in trying to provide um, cannabis to people with chronic chronic conditions. Most of the people on the program actually suffer from really severe pain. And so I've worked on that. But over the last couple of years, I've turned my attention to ending marijuana prohibition uh, in Iowa. And it's ending across the country because it's been a costly failure. The criminal prosecution of people for using and possessing marijuana has destroyed countless families, thrown thousands of children into poverty in our state, raised our property tax, made our workforce shortage worse, made our kids and communities less safe. And uh, it also unfairly targets black and brown Iowans. 
it's time that we reform our laws with sensible drug reform. It's happening all over the country. And the way to do that is to regulate cannabis like we regulate alcohol and bring it out of the back alley, control and test it, regulate who, how, and when it can be sold. We can create thousands of jobs, create some new state and local revenue to actually fund substance abuse prevention and treatment and fund support for our children's mental health system. Senator, how do we legalize it along the lines you just described without adding to youth use and the the risk, if you agree with the risks outlined by Peter, uh, to our youth? Well, let's, we, we agree on one thing here, Peter and I, that we should have zero tolerance for teens and minors using cannabis, uh, nicotine, alcohol, and other drugs. We should basically say uh, that's out of bounds. We want every young person to get a healthy start in life, and they should not be using alcohol, marijuana, or other illicit drugs as their brains develop, period. And I think we all agree on that. I would also suggest, though, that study after study that's been conducted uh, in states where we've seen marijuana policy reform, we see uh, it has not been linked to increased rates of marijuana use among teens. There's a whole host of studies looking at these states, and we've seen essentially no increase in in teen usage. Uh, I could go into details if I need to and be happy to. I'd say look at Iowa's medical cannabis program. It's, it's been well-regulated, very controlled, and we don't see increased use in Iowa as a result of us having a medical cannabis program that serves the needs of chronically Ill-Iowan. Senator Bochum, we, we all agree it's also not that, you know, if, since it's illegal in Iowa, it's not that youth are not getting a hold of, of marijuana and have for, for generations here. But do go into a, a couple of the details uh, that you mentioned um, uh, that perhaps don't match up with the, the, the data that, that Peter has, and we'll have a chance for him to react, and we'll go to a few callers. The journal in 2019, the Journal of the American Medical Association, published a a major report analyzing federal data that is contributed by more than a million high school students about their practices and use. And the researchers basically found no significant associations between the enactment of these adult use uh, legislation laws like we've proposed in Iowa and marijuana use among high school uh, students. It also looked at medical cannabis laws and concluded that there's no impact on youth marijuana use There's another study, a meta-analysis of 55 academic papers uh, that was published in the journal Current Addiction Reports in September of 2018, and they also found no increase, essentially, in rates of use among adolescents. Right. Does that make sense? Why why wouldn't it go up if if you have a change in, in access legalizing? Well, I think it's already available to young people, Uh, most young people in high school and you know they know they know where they can get marijuana now, uh, so they're mm-hmm. they're for those kids that want us uh, have access to marijuana, they already get it. So when it comes on the market in these states, we, I'm just the the data suggests that we haven't seen what Peter would suggest would be you know all all these kids going out and and, and smoking marijuana. It's just not happening, mm-hmm. uh, and there's data that, that supports that. So while it might seem like kids are going to find their way to it. They're just, it's just not happening. Uh, 
let's get a reaction from uh, Peter and then go to some callers. We have a, a number of waiting, but uh, Peter Komandowski of uh, Partnership for Healthy Iowa, how do you react? It seems like your data is in direct conflict with Senator Bolcom's. It is, and science doesn't lie. I mean, I, I'd like to say that, yeah, we agree kids shouldn't use it, and Senator Bolcom recommends that we treat it like alcohol, which has been a disaster. Access, youth access to alcohol, the the the, the actual, it's almost racist efforts to put more alcohol distribution centers in areas where people are impoverished and where there are people of color. This is sheer exploitation. The alcohol industry has been a disaster at managing youth access. And the last thing we want to do is mimic that with marijuana. And, and when we look at the research that we see, and there's wonderful organizations out there headed by Dr. Uh, Ken Finn in Colorado, Christine Miller with Smart Approaches to Marijuana, Dr. Ed Gogek, who wrote Marijuana Debunked. I mean, I would say that we put the professionals in the room with contemporary research. We might be able to enlighten Senator Bolcom of the fact that his research is not the bulk of research in support of it. As a matter of fact, he's sadly misinformed from our point of view. We want to make sure that Iowans get that other point of view. What about Senator Bolcom's point that criminalizing marijuana over the past decades has uh, really impacted many groups uh, more than others and and really um, um, given problems to, to, to people just because of the criminalization of it, where otherwise they would not have to carry this uh, burden of a, of a conviction? I was with the gentleman from Smart Approaches to Marijuana, a black gentleman from Washington, D.C. yesterday, Will, and he is a staunch advocate of the fact that it's not the drugs that have penalized minorities in America. It's systemic racism. And when we, when we found in, if we look at marijuana distributorships in states where they have legalized, they target minority populations and make the problem worse. And research clearly shows that there's a correlation in states where medical and legal marijuana has been approved, there's a huge increase in the use by kids. The difference is this, is that this is emerging research. This is stuff that's happened in the last couple of years. It's very much like what we saw with the opioid epidemic, where 18 years ago we saw the signs, like we see the signs about marijuana now, but we had to wait for physical casualties before we acted. If we wait before we act to protect our children now and we emulate even a little bit of the way alcohol is managed, our children are hugely at risk. And what we recommend is that we're much more conservative about our approaches and look clearly at what's been the failures of the alcohol programs to protect our children better if we are going to try to legalize marijuana. Gentlemen, this conversation has lit up our phones. I want to get to for quick um, uh, quick remarks from our callers, but I feel, Senator Bolcom, uh, you deserve a response to what Peter just said. Quickly, please. Well, again, study after study has concluded that marijuana policy reforms are not linked to an increase in marijuana use by teens. I'm not going to defend alcohol. I mean, we have a serious problem with alcohol. It's the number one cause of preventable death in in the United States. We've seen a 26% increase in alcohol deaths here in Iowa. 836 people died last year from alcohol. I would say that when we compare alcohol to marijuana, uh, marijuana is less toxic. It's less addictive and it's less deadly than alcohol. And for some Iowans, they would like to have uh, a, a substance that lets them relax and enjoy things and not have the risk that alcohol essentially provides to them. So I think, you know, this is, as we talk about, this is for adult use, 21 years of age and older, and letting adults make a decision about 
the risk benefit of these various substances. Okay, let's go quickly to our callers in the five or so minutes we have remaining. Luke is in Des Moines. Uh, what's your quick uh, comment on our conversation, your take, Luke? Yeah, I, I really do think that this issue is a, a racial justice issue. Um, I'm a white professional. I've, I've been a daily cannabis user for a good 12 years, and I've never had any sort of interaction with law enforcement around my cannabis use. We know that I was one of the worst states in the nation um, for racial disparities in our criminal justice system. And so to me, this really is a racial justice issue and should be the center of all the debates around cannabis legalization. Luke in Des Moines, thank you very much. Uh, let's also take another caller from Des Moines. Laura, welcome to our program. Hi, thank you. Um, I, I just want to push back on the state advocate that marijuana is highly addictive, and that's simply not true. And it's very, I'm very disappointed that he would say that. We've got a major problem with alcohol in this state. We all know that I was like number one statistically in the uptick of alcoholism and abuse, and that includes our kids. Um, kids are already getting marijuana. Along with legalization comes a lot more regulation and a lot more money. So I guess I just want folks to remember that it is for people 21 and over. It's for adults, and let's not get distracted by lies, because frankly, this administration is full of them, and I'm sick of it. Laura in Des Moines, let's go to Randy across the Mississippi in Moline in Illinois, where recreational use of cannabis is legal. Randy, welcome to the program. Hi, I'm just going to make this really quick. Um, I just want to say that I feel like in Iowa, and as someone who um, grew up in Wisconsin, I feel that this is very much a culture, you know, a culture thing. Um, you know, Iowa, you know, it's like the good old boy thing. It's like we can drink, you know, but you, but, but you can't smoke pot, you know. And just to echo what that lady just said, you know, the addictiveness, it's, yeah, that is just a complete lie. And we could really be doing a lot better in our, you know, in Iowa and in the country. And with that, I think I'm going to go get stoned. Thanks, guys. Randy joining us from Moline. <laughs> Martha, welcome in uh, Washington County, back on uh, on Iowa turf. Uh, hi, Martha. Hi. Yes, go ahead. Well, what is your take on our conversation today? Um, I come from a family of alcoholics, and I've been sober... Um, uh, <laughs> I'm starting to forget. I've been sober 34 years now, completely sober. Congratulations. And, yeah, and I actually did quit drinking alcohol about six months earlier than that, but I took it upon myself to smoke some pot, which I considered a pretty Mickey Mouse drug compared to alcohol, and I did that on June 1st, 88. And so I just consider my sobriety date june 1st i just figure i still don't so with your background we're running out of time martha with your background what is your take on the debate that you're hearing uh between our two guests and and our listeners protecting the youth all i can say is i go to aa i still go to aa been sober 34 years and as far as i know maybe there's people at aa that are doing other things besides alcohol but i know for me 
it behooves me to stay away from all mood-altering chemicals. Okay, Martha in Washington County, thank you so much. We're running out of time. I want to give our guests a, uh, um, a, a chance to, to, to finish up with any, tie up any loose ends. Uh, Peter, you've been hearing the comments there. Uh, please comment uh, on, on where you want to take this campaign, uh, what we can expect from you and the Partnership for Healthy Iowa uh, in this vein in the coming weeks and months. Well, the campaign, which is also partially authored by youth involvement based on the risks they see and their distrust of the adult population that wants to legalize things regardless of what, what, how they might affect the youth mind, um, I really think our campaign is going to be based on truth and, and get out the right research and get away from all these promotional tools that say it's innocuous and won't hurt you because marijuana is dangerous and high-potency wow. marijuana is highly addictive and its relationships to violence, psychoses, psychotic breaks, and schizophrenia are well-documented and far too grave a risk to expose to adult Iowans, let alone our children. Where will your funding come from, Peter? We're generally privately funded from donations, and then we encourage anybody that's interested in hearing the truth to join us on that. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't know what the future holds with legalization or, or medicalization of marijuana, but we do like the therapeutic alliance with medical doctors, not marijuana doctors, and we do like FDA approval to keep our citizenry safe. And we'd like to see protocols like that enforced before we legalize things um, just because people want them to be legal. I'd hate to think that every evil on the face of the earth could then have a referendum so the world just becomes what everybody wants and not necessarily what experts and professionals determine is safest. You know, we live in a world with stop signs and, and speed limits. Maybe we need them with marijuana, too. Okay, Senator Bolcom, the last word to you. We have about a minute. Well, under prohibition, uh, our kids are at serious risk. Um, and you can't regulate something effectively if it's prohibited. And so it's time to end prohibition. In the last year, almost 5,000 Iowans were convicted of marijuana possession. It's resulted in our property tax bills going through the roof to pay for it. Um, it's time for Republicans who run the General Assembly and Governor Reynolds to get off, to stop the Christian mortality police and 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 make open up the debate on this conversation about regulating uh, cannabis like alcohol. It's time to have a conversation about this and put together a, 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 an effort to manage the risk and t- take care of our kids and make sure our kids are safe. Very quickly, uh, State Senator Bolcom, why is Iowa not following all the other states? We could have over 20 here after these referendums. Why is Iowa not following suit with many other Midwestern states? Well, I think it, the earlier caller from the Quad Cities had it, right? I think it's a cultural thing. I, you, you'll, you'll have to ask Governor Reynolds, who's opposed, and the, and the 92 members of the Iowa General Assembly who are currently are Republicans. We don't have a single person that's elected as a Republican willing to lead on this. They're ready to regulate women's bodies but they do not trust the regulation of marijuana like we regulate alcohol. Okay, we have to go. Senator Joe Bolcom, a Democrat from Iowa City, thank you so much. Sorry, time's running out. Peter Kalmandowski of the Partnership for Healthy Iowa, thank you as well. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room 
at upstreamfm.com. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Well, this half hour, we'll focus on an event coming up in just a few days in Des Moines. My City, My Health is a conference focused on health advocacy, specifically making health information more accessible to the most vulnerable and underserved populations or communities here in Iowa. Joining us, Corey Dion Lewis. He's the founder of the Healthy Project. Uh, He's also a health coach at Broadlawns Medical Center in Des Moines. Corey, you've been on our program about a year ago. Welcome back. Awesome. Hey, thank you for having me, Ben. I really appreciate the time. Uh, Shayla Morris is with us as well. Shayla is a clinical pharmacist at Broadlawns Medical Center, and we'll hear more from her in a moment. She's uh, one of the featured speakers at this uh, day-long event on November 11th. Uh, Shayla, welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you guys today. Corey, start us off by talking about this one-day in-person event uh, featuring some of the Des Moines' most uh, influential health and community advocates. Tell us more about the day as you have it planned and its goals. Yeah, so my city, my health, is just a mirror of what I do with the Healthy Project. So, you know, the Healthy Project is all about um, talking about health disparities, health equity, uh, improving the health of our underserved and most vulnerable population. And that's what my city, my health is going to be bringing to the table next week. Um, We have a great group of panelists talking about um, not only the problems, but what are the solutions that we can bring to the table when it comes to racism in healthcare, when it comes to um, culture and uh, prevention, one the panel that's, that Shayla's on, and mental health and how community collaboration really helps improve the health of, of all. So next week, you know, you'll be experiencing all of that uh, from a, a black and brown lens and how we can improve those in our community. Just to make sure we all know what you mean, define this phrase you use, vulnerable and underserved population. Yeah. So when, when I when I talk about underserved populations, I'm, I'm really thinking of those people in our um, lower socioeconomic areas that are not, they don't feel like they are getting the appropriate care they need, right? So um, I kind of spoke about this last time where, you know, my mother being a, a black woman was not getting the didn't feel like she was getting the care she needed within the, the healthcare system. So those are our um, underserved who need the care, but because of how they feel about the healthcare system, they're not going and getting that. And when I'm, when I'm thinking about most our most vulnerable, I'm really think th- talking about our, our elderly population, mm-hmm. those people that um, that need need care but don't have uh, transportation. Doesn't have, don't have a loved one or a, a caregiver that can get them the the care that they need. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Shayla, let's turn to you. Um, you are a clinical pharmacist. You work at Broadlawns Medical Center there in Des Moines. What are you going to bring to the table for for this event? What's uh, what's your role, and, and what will you be focusing on? Yeah, well, I was really excited that Corey asked me to be a part of this event. 
Um, we work together in the primary care clinic. And so my one of my roles at Broadwand is really providing a lot of patient education and teaching them how to be an advocate for themselves when dealing with chronic diseases. So on the prevention panel, you know, we'll be discussing how someone can um, promote healthier lifestyles, how they can learn about different diseases that they may be more um, vulnerable to because of either a family history or some other things going on. Um, but if they happen to have those diseases, what are ways that we can appropriately treat it, um, get the knowledge to uh, make sure that, you know, it's not worsening and um, having any other future complications, as well as what are some things that we can do to maybe even reverse some of those issues. Mm -hmm. You want to add to that, uh, Corey, uh, about that specific? Is that a, is that a panel or is this um, uh, Shayla doing this on her own? Yeah, so each each discussion is a panel discussion. So we have four different panels. We have a, a culture and healthcare panel, a prevention panel, which is the panel that Shayla is on that she's been talking about, a mental health panel, and a community collaboration panel. So when it comes to the the prevention panel, just to add to what Shayla was talking about, it's really also for me, it's letting people know the importance of, of prevention. But also answering the question is to why, why when we think about prevention, the people that we need to serve are not getting that care. Right. And Shayla, this is when we talk about prevention, you know, so much of medical care can be very expensive. Prevention can be very cheap. If you avoid having the disease in the first place or you know uh, what you know, because of your family history or, or whatever, um, you have to watch out for um, taking care of yourself before it happens can uh, can be the most cost effective. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely, um, especially with most of the patients that we serve here at Broadwands. Um, as Corey mentioned, they are lower income, low socioeconomic status, but it's important for healthcare providers to recognize that as well, um, along with other, you know, social determinants of health that can prevent someone from coming in or being able to afford medications um, or anything else that they need to treat their diseases. So having those conversations early on, and maybe someone doesn't even realize that probably the cheapest option is to prevent it in the first place, but what are things that I can do? Um, having those conversations with patients but and also healthcare providers um, is so important. Yeah. D d prevention stretches into things like uh, diet, uh, right, Shayla? Absolutely. Um, what we're consuming on a daily basis, um, our lifestyle activities, water intake, um, making sure that we're getting a variety of fruits and vegetables. Some of those things sound so simple, uh, but then when you look at other barriers that people may be facing, what are they going to choose? A cheaper, unhealthier option? Um, is the healthier option, you know, more expensive? Could they possibly be living in a food desert? Are there other things that they need to pay for, you know, bills or, or caring for a family member? All of those things come into play with your health, but those aren't things that we typically talk about. Yeah. And Corey, perhaps you can help us understand a little bit more when we talk about underserved populations, black and brown populations uh, in, in Iowa, when we talk about prevention, uh, you know, when we, uh, how does that overlap more specifically with underserved populations, this specific area? Yeah, well, great question. And what, I, what I've noticed or what I've realized just in my experience working at Broad Lawns with this population 
is, you know, it takes it takes a lot of convincing for them to understand, especially when it comes to prevention. They a lot of people understand that diet, exercise are important, but they're looking at the healthcare healthcare from a different lens. You know, some of them have um, have issues. Their provider doesn't understand them, or um, there are so many different barriers that gets them that can get them to the point of looking at their care from um, from a prevention point of view. So it, it's just really the the big thing at question is how do we regain that trust so people can really start to look at their prevention. Uh, specifically in that population, how can we gain that trust back? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is at the heart of the the lack of trust, Corey? Yeah, well, you know, I will. Um, I'll tell you this little story. So I, I had a patient that I was trying to, uh, I had to see, and I was calling them to let them know about the preventative services they had available to them. This was a um, a older black male, and I was letting him know about he let him know about the um, he's due for a colonoscopy. Which is very important, which is you know, thing we have to do yearly, especially when you get to a certain age. And he, he said to me, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm healthy right now. And I'm trying to explain to him, you know, yeah, I'm glad you feel great now. And he continues to say no, because whenever I go to the hospital, um, they say something's wrong with me. And if I go to the hospital next time, I'm probably going to die. Well, in his mind, because of how he was treated for years, in his mind, that okay now every time I he they associate going to the hospital with death, but not realizing not getting those preventative measures, you're you're flirting with death if you can't catch anything if you don't catch anything right away if you wait until the last second. So that's what I mean around regaining that trust. It's not going to happen overnight, but getting those people who are culturally competent, uh, meaning that they understand that. People are coming to the healthcare system with uh, a pre- preconceived notions, with baggage, with how they already off the top think of their provider because they don't look the same. Really understanding that and how they can kind of guide them to regaining that trust. That's so interesting because people, so many people listening, I'm sure, have mostly good associations. I mean, no one, no one looks forward to their first colonoscopy, <laughs> for instance, <laughs> but. People do it because they realize it's it's valuable and important uh, uh, to just keep tr- track uh, of your health. Well, when you think about anyone in general, right, who are the people that you do trust? They're the people that understand you or you feel like they understand you. They're the people that take the time out to talk to you, to know what's going on and what your true concerns are. And one thing that I've heard from so many of my patients, both here at Broadlands and in previous roles that I've had, is that, you know, this was the first time that someone has ever actually explained what's going on, why they're being put on a particular medication, or why their physician or provider, you know, told them to do this thing. And so it can be very hard for some people to just take what's, you know, being said and do it, but not have that full understanding of it. And, you know, if that person walks away and they don't truly know what's going on, it can be very difficult for them to to continue to do what they're supposed to do or want to come back if they feel like they haven't been heard or understood. So I think that's a large part of it, as well as, you know, some, some generational things, um, some trauma within specific communities. But I think one of the biggest things that we as healthcare providers can do is just truly listen to our patients and, one, and ask them, 
what's going on? What are your concerns? How can I make you feel good moving forward with this plan? Mm -hmm. Shayla and Corey, I just want to reach out to those who may have just joined us to to remind um, those who have just joined us that uh, we're talking about My City, My Health, a conference focused on health advocacy, uh, specifically health information, making it more accessible to the most vulnerable, uh, elderly people perhaps, or underserved populations, black and brown communities here in Iowa. Corey Dion Lewis, founder of The Healthy Project, is with us, also a health coach at Broadlawns Medical Center in Des Moines. Shayla Morris, clinical pharmacist at Broadlawns. Corey, tell us a little bit more. We talked about uh, how Shayla is involved and in, in this aspect of, of prevention. Uh, there's so much more being offered in this one-day event. Tell us about it. Yeah, so the um, the event is structured, you know, almost kind of like a podcast. I, I need, need to stay within my comfort zone. You know, it's being held at a studio. <laughs> it's being held at a studio. Yeah, so it's, it's being held at Mainframe Studios, which is. Um, a beautiful place has a great uh, it's a great um, a big event area where we're going to be having it at um, each panel has a, a moderator or a, a host podcast host and it's just really having conversations with the the experts and the audience so um, the first panel like I said culture and healthcare talking about um, how um, culture is how culture is affected in healthcare, how we see culture in healthcare, um, how um, patients are treated, even how um, doctors of color are treated within healthcare from patients and having that conversation uh, about culture and how, and how we can improve, improve, improve those relationships, Uh, mental health, you know, just really having a conversation around black and brown mental health. And, you know, within the black community, mental health is still, it's, getting more out there people are more are talking about it a lot more but it's still kind of hidden we're not really talking about mental health as much within the community or as more now than before but still we have some room for improvement um, and then one of the uh, panels that i'm i'm really excited about the uh the prevention panel which is you know that's my bread and butter talking about prevention and the uh, conversations we can have there you know especially given that it's, you know, Diabetes Awareness Month um, in November, um, November 11th, Black Panther comes out. And we know that um, Black Panther previously, and he died from, you know, cancer. And so talking about why that's important to um, to men of color and, and men in general, just getting getting those preventative services. And then that community collaboration, you know, what we've learned over the, especially during the pandemic, is that when when collaborating with community-based organizations that are already in the community and serving the people that we're trying to make healthier, it's just a, it's a huge benefit. So talking about the uh, importance of community collaboration and the people that we have on that panel who are, who have been um, vital to that collaboration within Des Moines, you know, and, and Broadlawns is just going to be a great, a great discussion, but also for the people that are attending, um, giving them really great ideas on how they can go back into their community and uh, make a change. All right, and I see one of your one of your panels, at least one of them, um, involved with schools, public schools, and health. 
Yes. Yeah. So, and, and that's a big one. So um, Tim Johnson, he's a behavioral uh, per, uh, behavior person at uh, Des Moines Public Schools, which is much needed. So really coming from it from that perspective of, you know, what does that look like within the schools and, and how we can improve, improve there too. Mm -hmm. uh, who in particular, Corey, are you looking to attract to this event? You say it's going to be hopefully very interactive between the speakers, the panelists, uh, and the, those who attend. Who should attend? Who should think about being attending? So th there, there are three people that I want at this, at this conference, in, or the summit, sorry, Health Equity Summit, and that those are those within the public health space, healthcare, and um, people within the community. And why I think it's important to have those in the community there is because in, in previous or past conferences or summits or whatever I've attended, when we're talking about how we can improve the health of, of people, the people that we're talking about aren't there. And I think that's super important, not only I think it's important for the people that are providing the service because they can interact with their customer and they can say, yeah, this is how I feel. And it, it's in a neutral area where the provider or the, the, the nurse or the public health professional or healthcare professional can just listen to what they're trying to say. And then that, that healthcare consumer can feel more comfortable and, and start to trust, like we've been talking about previously is start to trust the people that are providing that service. So I, those are the three people that um, I would love to attend my mm -hmm. city, my health. Shayla, can you imagine someone attending uh, this uh, conference, this uh, summit, uh, who has perhaps been a, um, a healthcare provider, a medical professional for years, perhaps a white person who might have a blind spot when it comes to the cultural aspects of medical care for uh, black and brown people. It, it sounds like that what was Corey is aiming for as well. Absolutely. Um, I think that if there's anything that, you know, this pandemic has shown us is that there are much larger disparities than some people probably ever imagined. And so if anyone wants to grow, you know, within their field, but in particularly healthcare and making sure that we're serving truly everyone in our communities, we do need to take that look inward and, and look through things uh, through a different lens to make sure that our patients are being heard and that we're treating them, you know, appropriately and how they need to be treated so that they can continue to work on their own healthcare needs. Um, in just a moment, I want to ask Corey to remind us of uh, contact information, how people can find out more, possibly uh, attend this event. Uh, but Shayla, I want to ask you, you know, uh, you have seen success here in the past, I understand, in, in your work. So really time um, invested in, in learning about this can, can uh, pay off. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, once again, I feel like education for our patients is just so important. And, you know, I've seen in my previous work that big difference that it makes. And also when the patient sees it, that buy-in just grows and grows. Um, previously, I was working um, out of the health system in Louisiana, in New Orleans. And so, of course, a large percentage of their general population struggles with chronic diseases such as hypertension and diabetes. Um, and so I was working with a patient fairly consistently over three months. And when you have diabetes, we regularly get your A1C checked, which is an average of your blood sugar over three months. So you only get that lab every three months. 
Um, and during that time, you know, I really got to know that patient. Um, we discussed not just her health care, but, but other issues and concerns that she had that impacted that care. And then I feel like, you know, she really got a hold on her diet, her lifestyle. She was motivating herself, but it was because that she was armored with that information and I was able to be an additional support system for her. Mm. Um, so probably one of the biggest jumps I've personally seen and we were both very excited about um, is that her A1C was around 12, which our goal was less than seven. Um, but because she had, you know, trust in our relationship, the things I was teaching her, in addition to all of the changes that she made on her own, her A1C actually went down to about 6.7 in three months, which is truly incredible. Um, and she was just ecstatic over the moon, hmm. if anyone could be. Um, but for me, it was just so eye-opening because you can really see the impact of what we're doing when the patient feels heard. Mm. Well, let's hope this event uh, spawns more success stories like you just mentioned there. Shayla, Corey, we have a few seconds left. Uh, give us the uh, the basics on this event and how people can attend. Yes, if they can go to mycity.health. You can go there and learn more about the panelists, what we're doing and what the goal is, um, and also register. You know, like I said, it's at Mainframe Studios here in Des Moines. Uh, We have great, great panel conversations, um, great exhibitors, great sponsors, um, and it's going to be a a great time. I said great a lot, but it's going to be great. (laughs) Undoubtedly. Corey Dion Lewis, uh, founder of The Healthy Project, uh, and uh, Shayla Morris uh, of Broadlands Medical Center. Uh, Shayla and Corey, thank you so much uh, for telling us all about this event. Yes, Ben, thank you as well. I appreciate you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. And that does it for this hour. Today's River to River, produced by Danny Gear. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. ¶¶